Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today, we are kicking off uh, what I hope will be occasional attempts to bring in authors of newly published books relevant to the transatlantic space. And so for our inaugural book-focused episode, we're talking with Elizabeth Bra about her new book, The Defender's Dilemma, Identifying and Deterring Gray Zone Aggression. Uh, As Elizabeth notes, in the 21st century, the nature of conflict has fundamentally changed. Instead of physical invasion, the most prevalent form of aggression occurs in the gray zone between war and peace. Non-military means of aggression like cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns offer several benefits for authoritarian adversaries seeking to undermine liberal democracies, uh, including by making aggression more difficult to deter and coming at a lower cost than traditional warfare. And as Elizabeth notes, while governments in the US and Europe have worked to become more resilient to gray zone aggression, uh, significant gaps in gray zone defense and deterrence still exist. So we're excited to get into all of these issues with Elizabeth. Um, So Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. A very brief background. Elizabeth is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges like hybrid and gray zone threats. She's also a columnist with Foreign Policy where she writes on national security and the globalized economy and a member of the National Preparedness Commission in the UK. All right, so let's get down to it. Elizabeth, for folks who have not yet had the opportunity to read your wonderful book, can you give us a quick elevator briefing? Tell us kind of in your words very briefly what it's about. And I'm also eager to hear kind of why you wrote it, why now? Yeah, so the book is about the range of, of gray zone aggression that we're seeing today. So there has been a lot of focus over the years on, on cyber aggression. There's been a lot of focus on disinformation, but there hasn't been uh, a lot of work combining uh, these forms of, of gray zone aggression or putting them uh, in, in perspective uh, because they are only two forms of gray zone aggression. It's a, it's a, a whole plethora of uh, gray zone aggression uh, varieties that, that aggressors can use. And in fact, they keep coming up with new forms all the time. And we are seeing it now, for example, with Belarus that keeps, uh, or where Lukashenko, President Lukashenko of Belarus, uh, keeps uh, milking the golden cow of weaponized migration, uh, which is using to, to weaken uh, NATO and the European Union. So um, uh, gray zone aggression is this um, fantastic field if you are the aggressor because you can keep innovating and and so far I think most of the focus has um, incorrectly been on on separate forms whereas the the the, uh, the fantastic opportunity for the aggressor is uh, in in the gray zone is that you can use all these different forms and you can use them use them in combination and then uh, the other focus of the book uh, in addition to laying out this this whole uh, spectrum of gray zone aggression and discussing it is to discuss uh, what we do about it and then from my perspective the, the two key uh, uh, bits that that need to be uh, put into place are societal resilience so in, in essence deterrence by denial and then also deterrence by punishment and and how do we punish such acts of aggression where we're not really it's not really clear even when an act of aggression is taking place and and uh so but uh, even though it's difficult to identify it uh, while it's happening um it's nevertheless uh imperative that we figure out some sort of uh measures to uh to uh 
punish or ideally to, to signal that we'll punish gray zone aggression so that it doesn't happen. Well, I, uh, I'm so glad you're with us, Elizabeth. Um, this has been a uh, uh, something I, I personally wanted to have you on Brussels Sprouts to talk about because, you know, of all the folks who have tracked resilience issues, tracked the gray zone, this type of thing, I think you've been on it the longest. Uh, you, I remember reading your and listening to you years ago talk about this kind of thing. Certainly in Europe, you're seen as the, an expert, and now you've come to Washington, which is wonderful because I think Washington particularly needs to get some education going from you on uh, on gray zone and how do you deal with this in terms of of society? And so let me let me ask you a question. What do you think as you as you've been now in the U.S. Uh, well, you've returned. I know you lived here earlier, but you've returned now and you've been here a few months. What do you think in terms of the United States that is really not being done and needs to be done? You know, you come from uh, the Nordic countries. You were in London for many years as well. You know what the Europeans are doing. Nordic Baltic countries, particularly at the societal level, are doing a lot of things right now. And I think the U.S. is, is far behind. And I was wondering, what's your feel now that you've been here? What are we not doing that we need to do in terms of resilience? Well, what strikes me as odd is in this country of, of personal responsibility, nobody is asking citizens to be part of the solution. So uh, when we look at things like colonial pipeline, it, the, the original attack, which, okay, it wasn't conducted by the Russian state, but it was condoned by the Russian uh, state, clearly, uh, that attack was bad in itself, but it was made much worse by the fact that that ordinary citizens didn't know what to do. They acted selfishly and fr from their perspective, clearly very logically because they all felt they needed gasoline. So they all filled up and made the situation a lot worse than it needs to be. So in this country of personal responsibility, why is it that, that ordinary citizens have so far not been asked to do their part to help keep the country safe? And it's not just with regards to cyber attacks, it's with regards to to subversive business practices, it's with regards to, to disinformation. The fact that the the the, the uh, reason we had the the January six attack on on Congress was uh, not so much Russian or Chinese or any other interference. In fact, there may have been uh, no interference at all. But it was the fact that people didn't act in the interest of the country. They acted selfishly and they didn't think about what their responsibility was for the democracy uh, or for the well-being of the country. And so I think there's an enormous opportunity if people are just encouraged to, to, think, <laughs> to think beyond themselves, but somebody has to encourage them, somebody has to invite them. And, and I think it's possible. So I used to live in San Francisco. San Francisco has uh, earthquake uh, awareness, public awareness campaigns, and it's uncomfortable to think about what you would do if an earthquake happens, but you feel that at least if it were to happen, you know what to do and you feel that it, you're, you're part of a, a collective effort to minimize damage. I think that's possible in national security as well. Well, let me, let me, let me follow up then. If, if, you, um, if you're able to advise the Congress or the administration on, on initial steps to take, what would those be? And I, I'll just use as an example, I remember when uh, a few years ago in Stockholm, um, the Swedish government began to hand out these pamphlets, which they did during the Cold War too. I think they put them in the phone books, but I, but they, 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 um, but more recently they handed out these pamphlets, and I think the title was something like 
if we go to war or something like that. I mean, it was very striking, I remember. And then they slipped them under the doors of all the houses in Sweden uh, to have people starting to think about that. And I, I thought to myself, my God, we could never do that in this country. It would just set off all kinds of strange regional craziness. Uh, but, uh, but that was something very simple uh, that Sweden did, very effective, that I think we just wouldn't be able to do. So, but if you could advise administrations, what would those, what would your advice be on simple steps we could just start off with? Uh, you're, you're correct about that leaflet. So it, it's called, if crisis of war comes, and it was, it existed during the Cold War, it was called, if war comes, now it's called, if crisis of war comes, and it was, uh, up, so it, it, uh, it, during the Cold War, it was published in, in the film book. Uh, now in 2018, it was resurrected as if war, if crisis of war comes and it was updated obviously to include lots of other uh, crises uh, short of war, uh, but still with, with bullet points about what to do if crisis of war comes and sent by post to all households in the country. And I think it was a fantastic move and, and people ridiculed it. This is three short years ago, People ridiculed it. They thought it was over the top. They thought, you know, the, the Swedish civil contingencies agency, which, which produced it, was being paranoid. But in fact, uh, two years later, less than two years later, COVID arrived and, and people panicked. And they panicked because they had no preparations for crises short of war, let alone war. And, and so I think goes to, to, to illustrate that if, if you well, first of all, you need to involve the population to make sure that when something happens, that it, that it's, it, you, know, you don't get complete chaos. And it's better to have if people are going to panic, it's better for them to panic ahead of the crisis and during the crisis. Um, so when it comes to America, when so when I arrived at the EI, uh, lots of people in Washington told me, well. Your ideas are too European. It's never going to work here, and it's you know, this idea of, of acting jointly as, as societies. It's, 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 it's just it's too European. Uh, but I must say the response so far has been fantastic. Um, so some of the ideas made it into an NDAA amendment, which I was thrilled about. Uh, a couple of congressmen have. Uh, invited me to be on on that podcast and and uh, and so forth. So. Uh, uh, bipartisan interest and I'm not saying that because I, I think I'm some sort of genius but because there is growing interest and, and well recognition that this is a problem and people are looking for ideas for what to do about it and and um, I think what makes this different from traditional uh, national security threats is that in the US those national security threats in the past have been associated with wars. Well, wars are highly unlikely to affect the American homeland, right? So the people who talk about the Marcina somehow talking about very abstract things, and it's something that you know, the armed forces will take care of, and the rest of us can afford to pay no attention. Well, this is different, right? I mean, if you've seen Colonial Pipeline, if you have seen January 6th, if you have seen the poison of disinformation and fragmentation within society, you realize that actually these new national security threats are so, uh, pose such a, a massive uh, risk to our societies that it's in everybody's interest to try to be part of the solution. Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I just, I, and Andrea is being very patient once again with me. Uh, let me jump in for, uh, just for a second. You know, I grew up in Florida, and in Florida, like San Francisco with earthquakes, Florida doesn't have earthquakes, but we have hurricanes. And um, it was ceaseless, this um, 
the education of the public about what to do in a hurricane, uh, when to evacuate, to the point where you would go to the grocery store and back in the days when they used paper bags, you had, um, every paper bag had a hurricane tracking map on it, you know? So, I mean, it was, this is something that we can do, that we have done. Um, and I, I think this is, um, I think too, too quickly, we assume that this is too European, uh, quote unquote, and something that we can't do. And I think we can do. And I think COVID shows us that we should be able to do that. I mean, COVID's also polarized us a bit, but there are some things that were bipartisan. And one of them was, you know, um, the need for PPE, not to wear masks necessarily, but the, but the fact that you've got to have PPE in, in, in store and you've got to, there are certain things that we needed to do for our own resilience that we weren't doing in terms of public health. And just the last point, and then Andrea, back to you. But the only last point is that I, I, at a minimum, it would be good to know what you do if your ATM machines go out because of a cyber attack. Estonia had that, other nations have had that. If our, if our ATM machines went down, it would be chaos, uh, I would think, or the, you know, the visa card doesn't work or something. And, and so what do you do? Call your bank? I mean, you know, what, what, what do you do? So Andrea. I think, I mean, you guys are raising such interesting and important points. I mean, you know, with thinking of hurricane preparedness or earthquake preparedness, I think all of that is prefaced on the fact that people see like a clear danger from those things. And Elizabeth, I wonder, you know, when you were researching this book, if you focused at all on kind of public attitudes or understanding of the nature of these threats, is this something that the public kind of clearly sees and recognizes? Is it the case that that is a clear and, and observable and understandable danger in Northern Europe that is you know, looking right up at Russia, whereas in the United States, you know, we're, we're at, a, at a very different position. So how much of this and how much of um, the potential to do these preparedness measures depends on a public understanding and recognition that that threat exists? And how do you see the United States compared to maybe Northern Europe or other parts of Europe on that front? Yes, I think it doesn't, uh, it doesn't even depend that much on, on people seeing Russia or China as a threat. It just depends on them realizing, recognizing that uh, there's the societies in which we live are extremely sophisticated and as a result, they're extremely vulnerable. And, and once you have, uh, you have experienced something on that, that you rely on every single day, have, uh, not being available for, for a day or even half a day, then you realize that actually uh, your society is quite vulnerable. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, in the UK, the, my, the mobile phone company that, that I'm with, uh, their service went down for, for 12 hours and people uh, didn't know what to do with themselves because the, yeah, the network was down and, and that's one mobile phone company for half a day. And, and, uh, but it was the wake up call, not just for, for those customers, but, but for everybody. And so we, when we think about the, the disruptions that we are already seeing, um, many are uh, a result of climate change. And in a sense, I mean, there is nothing good about climate change, but in a sense, in this sense, in, in a sense, uh, in this area, climate change is our friend because it too will cause, uh, is causing disruption that will uh, force people to, to think about what to do in a crisis. And so we have to do something about climate change anyway. We have to do something about national security threats anyway. So why, why not... Uh, 
uh, use that opportunity to, to address both of these areas. And, and, and the point is that disruption is, I mean, it's disruption. Uh, it doesn't matter who causes it. You, you just have to build resilience. And then another thing I think is really important is uh, what do companies do uh, to, to be part of the solution? And I think that's where we have a, a, a huge challenge. So it's okay for, for people like you and me to, to realize that, oh, uh, I should think about what I would do if power went out for an hour or two, or let alone 24 or 48 hours. I should think about uh, what I would do if, if my mobile phone service went down or, or, uh, or if there were to be no gasoline at, at the gas station. But uh, companies, what is their responsibility? And I think um, if, if the latest uh, turn of events around Facebook has shown anything, it is that uh, a company such as Facebook has its own view of where it wants to go. And that view may not be the same of where the country needs to go. And so there is a, a clash that, that we didn't see during the Cold War when, when captains of industry saw themselves as pillars of the community, right? Yes, they, they wanted to make money for themselves and their shareholders, but, but they also had this noblesse oblige where they wanted to be part of, of uh, keeping America great. Well, how, how can we, how can we uh, instill that sort of uh, sense of obligation among current um, captains of industry? And, and uh, I think it, it will be uh, quite a bit harder than it was during the Cold War. So kind of getting back into like understanding and appreciating the gravity of the challenge, I think in your book, you point to 2014 as the obvious kind of turning point for all of this. Can you describe kind of how, what you see as the trajectory post 2014, I mean, it's a clear turning point with the illegal annexation of Crimea and Russia really going on the offensive and taking the fight uh, to liberal democracies in the West in particular. But can, so can you kind of, as you looked at this challenge, can you explain how you saw uh, Russia increase its efforts in this space. And then I'm also really curious to hear kind of how you see China coming into this. You know, we often, I think when we think of disinformation and these kind of disruptive cyber attacks, Russia is top of mind for most of us. But maybe if you can talk a little bit about how you've seen China enter into this, this game as well. Yeah, I remember when, uh, in 2014, when everybody, um, assuming that Russia would try the same uh, trick twice, immediately began focusing on on Nava, which is fine. I and mean, you sort of, it was a wake up call. Now I remember uh, meeting the the mayor of Nava at the conference, and he said, "You know, I'm so sick and tired of all these journalists turning up here <laughs> to talk to to the Russians in Nava," and and he just didn't see that uh, he didn't see Russian annexation as a risk at all. And I think now in hindsight, he was right. But back then everybody was trying to figure out, you know, what's changing, what, what will come next? Um, and everybody was focusing on Russia. But I, uh, I think today really the, the, the threat from China far exceeds that from Russia. And that doesn't mean that we, that we, should, uh, that we shouldn't take Russia seriously, but China's opportunities to weaken our countries are just, um, they are the, of, well, there are many more opportunities uh, to weaken our countries and China's leverage over our countries, is, uh, so the West, is also much bigger because we are completely interconnected with, with the Chinese economy. And in fact, we depend on China both for manufacturing and for sales. 
So if China wants to weaken our countries, it can just do what, what it did with, with Sweden after Sweden announced that it was not going to use Huawei for 5G, then uh, the Chinese officials immediately said, well, there be, will be consequences for Ericsson. Uh, so what do you do if, you, if you're Ericsson? You can't do very much because you depend on the Chinese market. And you, just, you can just hope that, that they'll forget that they ever thought of that threat. Well, China didn't forget that it had issued such a threat. And, and, and uh, so I, I followed this to see what, what would happen to Ericsson because it was such a sort of seminal case. Um, uh, and within months, so that was in, at the end of 2020, then uh, over the spring and summer of 2021, uh, Ericsson's sales in China declined, whereas they grew uh, in the rest of the world. Then in July uh, of 2021, so July this year, uh, China Mobile, which is their largest mobile phone company and, and, and uh, provider, and in fact, also the, the largest mobile phone provider in the world, um, had a, a new contract round for its 5G and Ericsson in the previous round had had 11%, uh, had been given 11% of the contract. Now it was given 2%. So clear punishment of Ericsson. And yet it, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it's not illegal. China Mobile can give business to whoever they want. You know, Chinese buyers can buy uh, products, services, from whoever they want, you can't go. You can't as Sweden. You can't go to the uh, WTO and say, well, well, China is is punishing us because it <laughs> it, it just looks like the, the hustle and bustle of, of the globalized economy." And that's what I'm concerned about because really the well-being of our countries depends on our companies being able to to operate globally the way they've been built up to do for the past thirty years. And now that is that doing so is a vulnerability. And, and what China is doing uh, is, China is, is of course sui generis because of the, the size of its market and the size of its, of its manufacturing sector, but other countries can, can come up with similar tricks now that, that China has broken the taboo and we saw it with, with Belarus in a completely different area. But uh, yeah, if, if you don't care about your reputation, then you can do whatever you like, right? And, and so, and that's what I'm concerned about more than, than, uh, than territorial uh, annexation or territorial conquest. I want to get back also to then what we do about that. But while we're on the topic of China, you know, in Northern Europe, Eastern Europe, clearly, I think there's an understanding of how Russia kind of weaponizes these different things, these different levers it has over Europe. But China is a relatively newer one, right? And so what is your sense of um, how, and I recognize that there are many different reactions in different parts of Europe, but what is your sense of the, the extent to which Europeans appreciate the way that China is conducting these kind of gray zone activities? I think the early weeks, the, those first dramatic weeks of COVID-19 were uh, uh, an enormous wake-up call for people in, in Europe and, and I think countries beyond as well. So if, if you remember, uh, COVID struck and it struck because uh, China had been obfuscating and you know, had, been, had punished the doctor who tried to, to uh, raise the alarm about COVID. Uh, and as a result, COVID um, then uh, traveled on, on to Europe and spread very quickly because they didn't contain it. And, and then struck Italy first, then other European countries uh, very quickly. And the callousness 
with which China treated that that early outbreak and, and you know, pretending it was it was some alarmist doctor who who uh, who um, was out to weaken the regime. Uh, that callousness, I think, then became obvious in in Europe as well when when China tried to exploit uh, COVID by. Uh, by sending supplies, yes, it sent supplies, but it was not out of, of any sort of uh, generosity. It was commercial transactions, and it, it tried to use uh, the, the delivery of those PPE supplies uh, for as, 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 a, as propaganda, really, to, to um, instrumentalize itself as, as a global helper when, in fact, it had uh, it, it, the reason that we had the, the, the virus outbreak in the first place was that China had had uh, been acting very callously. So all of that uh, caused a wake-up call, and you, you could see it within months in, uh, in Pew Research Center findings, where uh, distrust of China among uh, the public in, in every Western country uh, surveyed those figures that the distrust had uh, skyrocketed. So I, I think, and, and that's something that, that won't reverse itself because now we've essentially been awakened from this dream where China would become a country just like ours and people are uh, extremely skeptical of China but at the same time it's, it's obvious that we have to keep trading with China because otherwise <laughs> we uh, our, our prosperity will plummet and nobody's willing to to give up their comfortable lifestyle so we have those two conflicting realities at the same time uh, the public and in fact decision makers having completely or uh, at least partially lost trust in China, but knowing that we're still dependent on China. So uh, th that's what I think makes China such a, um, uh, a tricky case compared to Russia, where, yeah, it is, it is a threat, but it doesn't have that, that uh, economic leverage over us. And, and it, we don't depend on Russia for, for our prosperity. Yes, we may depend on Russia for, for, for uh, energy, but that's basically it. You know, one thing about the gray zone is that it seems to be the home for a lot of, of uh, wake-up calls. Uh, you're absolutely right about the wake-up call about China and coming out of COVID. Um, but there have been other surprises uh, that have occurred in the gray zone. One of those is the weaponizing of migrants, the way Belarus has been, been doing. It was like a year or two ago. No one would have thought of that as a tool. Uh, in the uh, of use in the gray zone. Usually, when people talk about the gray zone, they say cyber attack and disinformation. And but I but I think there's, as you pointed out earlier on, there's a lot of tools um, uh, that are available to a uh, an opponent who wants to use the gray zone. What do you think are some wake up calls that haven't been heard yet? I know that's kind of hard, but as you as you survey the scene and you look at at our vulnerabilities, and you look at some of the things uh, that these countries might be ex uh, experimenting with, China and Russia, um, what, what, what wake-up calls do you think could be in our future that no one's really uh, heard yet? Well, so if we look at what, what uh, makes society function on a daily basis, it's the constant arrival of goods, from, uh, from different countries delivered to us by global shipping companies through global supply chains that have an extremely 
complex um, logistics machine. And, and it's a miracle that this works in the first place, but it does. So credit to the, to the global transportation sector and especially the global shipping sector for managing to bring us these goods every single day. Now, if I were China, I would, if I wanted to harm Western countries, I would, for example, uh, tell my companies to suspend deliveries of a particular product for a few days or a few weeks, maybe. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't announce it to the world. I would just, the, the, these goods would just stop arriving. Uh, and what can we do? It's not, we can't bring it to the WTO because China has said nothing. And it, you know, the companies could claim that, that they are having uh, production issues. There is very little we can do. China tried something similar uh, or the reverse, uh, not just tried, it did it in 2010 when Norway, the Norwegian Nobel uh, Committee awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to a Chinese dissident. Well, all of a sudden, as you recall, um, China discovered mysterious organisms in Norwegian fish and stopped importing Norwegian fish. And there was nothing the Norwegians could do because they can't prove that there wasn't a mysterious organism in, in a fish that China uh, the Chinese authorities examined, um, and, and it was obvious to everybody what China was doing, but there's nothing you can do. And that's what I'm concerned about, that China will mess with global supply chains and will be in so much trouble because our prosperity depends on these goods coming and going on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I, I think that's right. I mean, just remembering what happened in the Suez Canal when the when that Chinese ship got the cattywonker in the canal and it stopped uh, traffic for a couple of days. I guess one thing that's a double-edged sword for China is that as they do those kinds of things, and I think you're absolutely right, they're also incurring a cost short-term, but also a longer-term cost too, in terms of, of uh, nations not wanting to deal with China in terms of their products uh, or, you know, it could be, it hurts China too. So I think for the Chinese, it's trying to find those tactics and techniques that, uh, that, that uh, have an impact, and, but, but, uh, but not so much of a cost to China. And my feeling is that the Chinese can absorb a lot more cost in using a tactic than we'd be able to. Because in our societies, in our countries, the public is so opinionated and coming back to what we were talking about earlier, so little focused on, on on the good of, of, of society as a whole and instead focused on, on, on the individual good. And so if, if, if deliveries were to stop of the product that I wanted and could be anything from, from uh, uh, computer chips, meaning I can't order, I can't buy the, the mobile phone I wanted to buy, uh, all the way down to maybe shoes or anything that goes into the global supply chain, then I would get mad and say, well, what's going on? I, I had ordered this product and I want it. Whereas I, I think if we, were, if we were to impose some sort of embargo on, on China or some sort of punishment, uh, people wouldn't re react, individual Chinese wouldn't react so, uh, so petulantly. And of course that has to do with the fact that that country is not a democracy, so who would listen to them? But nevertheless, I think even in our free and open democracies, we could stand to, to behave a bit uh, more uh, maturely uh, when crises struck and strike. And, and that's not just to, to, to soften the blow of the crisis, but, but to signal to, to countries that may wish us uh, wish to do us harm that, that actually they, they can try, but we, we are more 
uh, we are more resilient than I might think. You know, on that point, and, and once again, um, Andrea is proving her patience, but, but uh, on that point, I think that's really an important uh, part of U.S. resilience is their own attitude towards things. And you mentioned that earlier on in the podcast, uh, as we were talking about whether something could be actually done in the U.S. or not, because we you know, we, we look on ourselves as too fractious. Uh, but I'm wondering, is, I'm wondering that, frankly, part of our resilience is going to have to be a change in attitude just in the very beginning to understand that these things are going to happen as a part of, of this competition for the next number of decades, probably. And we have got to play our part by, by absorbing them uh, and, being, uh, and not being as, as explosive when we have supply chain problems or shortages of things that are linked to the gray zone uh, so that we take away that weapon from the Chinese by showing that we're not going to rise to the bait and that we've matured and we can absorb this and you're going to have to find some other way to, uh, to impact us. Oh, absolutely. And we have to remember, it's not like uh, that we, it's not as if we need all these goods. A, a generation ago, we didn't have uh, all these goods that we have today. And I'm not saying, oh, you know, in the 18th century, look, people survived and that's, you know, what, what are you talking about? But nevertheless, uh, the, the constant availability of every product under the sun is something really new. It's something that has has uh, occurred since the end of the Cold War. And, and I think just uh, managing people's expectations and, and, and to for, for decision makers, those in charge, including media, to communicate that it's, it's fantastic that we have it, but let's not take it for granted. And let's just be a bit patient if, if something were to be uh, unavailable for, for a day or two. It's not the end of the world. And I must say, so the other day, uh, yesterday actually, I was going to cook something that called for halloumi, and I went uh, went around and couldn't find halloumi, and I got annoyed that there was no halloumi to be found. But I don't need halloumi. <laughs> There's plenty of other food you can eat. But this is this is the mindset today, right? And and so it's fine if there is halloumi or whatever it is you want to buy, whatever else it is you want to buy. But that's that's a, a, a fantastic situation if it's available. If it's not available, what's what's the, what's the problem? And 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 so I think that's. The mindset that we have to to uh, well that's where we have to adjust our mindset. Yeah, I think it I agree entirely, and you know, just having that conversation about what everyday what role everyday citizens play in national security. It's not a way that we're accustomed to thinking. Certainly in the United States, I feel like national security in the minds of Americans is something that they do in Washington D.C. Right? They do that over there, and you know, I in California or. Kansas or Iowa, you know, I don't play a role in that really. I think that's kind of the mindset. And I think you've put your finger uh, on a really important point about how that needs to change. But I think you also in your book talk about other things that need to be done in order to confront these gray zone activities. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you know, in it, it, I was thinking about it in the context of Belarus and the weaponization of migrants because that has proven so difficult for the European Union to respond. And there are cases, for example, you know, Austria has banks or other private businesses that operate in Belarus. And so they've been very reticent and pushed back and watered down EU level sanctions. So how 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 can the Europe how can Europe and the United States think about pushing back against these other than this 
kind of whole of society approach. I think you've talked about deterrence by denial and punishment. So can you tell us what you mean uh, about those two approaches? Yeah, so it's it's really using that the classic deterrence theory, right? There's it has these two components. Deterrence by denial is the more passive part, and 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 clearly the non-escalatory part because you can build it and it's there regardless of of what the other side does, and it's good to have anyway. But because it's it's a passive in nature, um, it's it's not particularly powerful. So you need deterrence by punishment as well, and then we know what that looked during looked like during the Cold War, and indeed after uh, the, since the end of the Cold War, it's, it's based on nuclear weapons. Well. The task by punishment also has to be has to be proportional, and if it's not, uh, then uh, the other side doesn't doesn't perceive it as credible, which is why uh, the terms by uh, well, which is why the nuclear deterrent has zero effect on on uh, on cyber aggression, for example, because every uh, every cyber attacker out there knows that the US is not going to to, to detonate a nuclear bomb uh, in response to 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 cyber aggression. Uh, but I think there are ways in which we can signal uh, that we will punish brazen aggression. And I think that the important part about deterrence is also that it, that it happens uh, before, um, before any given attack, right? I mean, if you have to wait until after an attack to, to signal punishment, then it's too late, then your deterrence has failed. So, so what is it that we can signal that uh, we will do if, if a country engages in, in gray zone aggression? I think... Um, the one weakness of, of all these countries, and it's primarily China and Russia as discussed, but, but even, uh, even uh, well, of course now Belarus and, and Iran and to a lesser extent North Korea, and I'm saying to a lesser extent because it just, it's so isolated that, that it, it's not having a great uh, effect uh, on, on our daily lives in the gray zone. Uh, but um, what can we do? I think that the, the vulnerability of these countries is that their elite enjoys the hospitality of our countries, and that's something that we can uh, that we can exploit, as it were. Uh, maybe not the leaders themselves and the officials themselves, officials themselves, but their their wives or their spouses, I should say, uh, uh, and and especially their children. And their children often live in our countries. They are being, they're going to university in our countries, boarding schools in our countries. Uh, they, uh, they live in our countries. They have uh, property in our countries, banking, bank accounts and so forth. Why, uh, why is, is that? Uh, well, that's something that we should signal to them uh, that they can't take for granted. Uh, that's, uh, we are generously providing it, but we could signal that if there were to be uh, gray zone aggression, if there were to be aggressive aggression in the gray zone uh, beyond a particular point, then we will um, use uh, visa bans um, to punish individuals of our choice. And it won't be the, 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 the usual suspects, meaning the officials themselves, because they already, I mean, they, and they are already under sanctions, but their families who at the moment really have nothing to fear. And it's, an, it's a mismatch. Uh, because, yes, children shouldn't be punished for the sins of their fathers, but on the other hand, they are enjoying the hospitality of our countries, thanks to who their parents are, otherwise they wouldn't have the money. So one thing I want to ask about, too, is, 
um, in the wake of obviously the 2016 election, um, there was more and more discussion about whether we needed some sort of Article 5-like mechanism that would help deter Russian interference in Western elections. And for a little while, I felt like that was gaining a little traction, that people were talking about it, recognizing the need for it. And now that idea seems to kind of have disappeared. And I, I wonder kind of what you think about that idea and whether or not you think it's, you know, politically feasible, but could there be a way, you know, in working across the Atlantic that we could create some sort of mechanism, agree on those actions that aren't acceptable in terms of interfering in our democratic processes, and then agree that we would take some sort of collective action to raise the costs and the, you know, the extent of the punishment that interfering countries would face for manipulating or interfering in our democratic processes. Did, in any of your research, was that something that officials talked about? Is that an idea that has already passed? Is it a good idea? Um, I think that the problem with, with an Article 5 um, in an area other than uh, uh, kinetic aggression is it's so hard to identify when that aggression is occurring. So is it when somebody notices something that looks odd on Facebook? Is it when, when a company is acquired that, that you think uh, that, that the acquiring party doesn't look like it's the, it is what it says it is? And, and, and then you have to investigate, and then you may come up with some conclusions that may, may, not, may or may not be uh, the level of certainty that you would want in order for Article 5 to be invoked so all of this takes time and then you may not even get the 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 the, uh, the level of certainty that you would need in order to for, for article uh, an article five type uh, punishment to be invoked so it's it's just so much harder than with the various obvious uh, military attack that you know, you know when it's happening and then and then you respond so that's why i think uh, and 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 uh, an Article 5 uh, type punishment mechanism has, has been discussed for, for subversive economic practices as well, but I think the reason it won't work is that it's so difficult to spot, which is another, uh, another uh, fantastic asset of, of the brazen to the, to the aggressor, that it's, it's, it's so hard for the targeted country to determine whether it's just whether what's happening is just a part of the hustle bustle of, of the globalized economy and globalized uh, uh, the globalized society, or whether it's it's uh, hostile state aggression uh, masquerading as 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 that hustle bustle. Uh, so it, it takes time to determine, and then it may be too late to respond. And that's what, for example, we have seen uh, in a completely different area, but uh, with China's construction of artificial islands in the South China Sea. Uh, which is another part of brazen aggression, right? So at first it was just a little bit, and then uh, the, the the surrounding countries and and the US said, well, it's just a little bit. Uh, it's it's now it's not a good time to 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 punish or to signal punishment. And at every given step of the way, it felt like oh, it was it's just a small step this time. And then at the end, at the end they had their islands, right? And and so you stand up with the fait accompli, and then it's similar. Uh, in, in, in subversive economics and, and, and disinformation as well. Uh, of course, I mean, if it's a, a totally obvious disinformation campaign, yes, but uh, uh, short of that, I, I don't see how you would determine at, at, at any given point that, that, that race and aggression is taking place. And I think of, of race and aggression, for that very reason, I think of it as 
as geopolitical gaslighting, because it's so easy to think that it's, oh, it's, it's just in my head, and, and the other side can, can make you believe that it's just in your head and you're being paranoid. And then, then when, when you finally have the evidence that it's, uh, that it's real, then it's too late. The burden, I, I think it's something we've talked about, the burden of truth and the burden of proof is very high in these instances. And it makes, and that makes collective action hard. I mean, I think that's one of the key barriers. Um, leave us with some good news. <laughs> leave us on a positive note. Um, you talked about, you know, visa bans and maybe closing some of the loopholes in our own societies. You know, here in the United States, there's a whole um, range of legislation, the Reveal Act and other things in Congress that I think are trying to, at least on this corruption side, close some of the loopholes and take some more offensive measures to go after kind of corrupt officials. That's tangential related, but may maybe not exactly the same thing. But I guess my, my question is, are there, is there low hanging fruit or are you think that there are actions that you can see coming in the near term um, where the United States and Europe together might be able to push back effectively against some of these tactics? Or are we gonna have to wait for some disaster to happen, a major cyber attack that takes things down or whatever to really galvanize us? Are there, is there a possibility where we can take, we can harvest that, that low-hanging fruit now and not have to pay the cost of a big demonstration of our own vulnerability. Yeah, I think the advantage that we have is that we are attractive countries and these other countries are not attractive countries. If you look at where people want to live, they want to live here, not there, including members of, of their own elites. They want to live here and their children want to live here. And, and that's something that we can use to our advantage. So for example, um, we, um, using publicly available information we could um we could reveal to to the world including these countries own citizens just how closely linked to our countries uh, those elites are and and how they are taking advantage of our countries while officially telling that well while telling their own citizens that we are we are useless and 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 uh, not not worth um uh, well, not worth living in for sure. Um, and so that is something I think we can exploit and, and a lot of information is available in the public domain, including property records and so forth. So if they were to engage in, in disinformation against us, we, well, we could, we could signal that we will, uh, we will uh, not through any sort of illegal WikiLeaks style means, but through uh, publicly available documents, we will communicate the, the truth about their own dealings in our countries. We'll communicate that to, to the global public and, 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 and to their citizens. That's easier with Russia than China because it's so hard to reach their citizens. Um, then I think uh, the other thing we can do is, is involving our, our companies because they have been, um, even as they have been expanding into Russia and China in particular, they have also been targeted and they are targeted by cyber attacks, they are targeted or they are, uh, uh, they are weakened through IP theft, which is something that China specializes in. They are weakened by subversive business practices uh, where, um, uh, again, uh, or I shouldn't say again, where uh, companies that should have should be operating in the West are bought up by Chinese companies. And as a result, uh, China as, as, a, as a, uh, an economy is much stronger than, 
than, uh, than it ought to be. And so if we think about all this, it's, it's in our own company's interest to be part of the solution. And I think they're realizing that now because on their own, they, uh, there is very little they can do. And so they have to team up uh, within that sectors and with, with our governments to, to signal that, that shady business practices, what shady practices uh, are, we're just not going to tolerate it. Uh, so that's another area. And then um, I, I, yeah, I, I wonder if we should also, if, if, if we communicate to our own public that uh, yes, our societies are vulnerable because they are free and open, but uh, they are not as vulnerable as they seem uh, because we can, we through, uh, by all doing our parts, can can limit the damage that's done to our companies. I think that could, that is bound to increase confidence in our countries. But if we if we wait, as you said, Jim, if we wait until various devastating cyber attacks, then people will lose confidence in our own country's ability to to operate in this pretty vicious world. And and so I, I realize it sounds a little bit like. Uh, you know, World War II uh, rara messaging, but it's, uh, I, I think uh, it's, we have let this idea go that, that uh, well, we have, especially the US has been communicating or not communicating at all, but uh, people's impression has been that if there's anything related to national security, somebody in uniform will take care of it. And as a result, they feel powerless when something happens. And the only people who do something are the people who are sort of uh, uh, maybe, uh, of a sort of vigilante mindset. Well, that's, that benefits nobody. Um, so uh, instilling the confidence of the public and the media has a big role to play here. And of course, politicians as well. And that's something that incidentally, I think has the, the potential to, to create a bit of some sense of unity, uh, even though I realize it, 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 it's not going to unite the country, but at least it can unite uh, minds around, you know, uh, uh, a relatively regular provision of gasoline. I think that's something we all can agree is a, is a good thing. I think those are such important points. I mean, I do hope that, you know, we can get to a point where we're trying to change mindsets about people's role in national security. Um, I think that's an idea whose time has come. And I hope that policymakers will take that seriously. I mean, certainly it to, to the, for all of the benefits and advantages that you've highlighted, getting people to understand that they play a role in national security can be a really important way in pushing back against some of these gray zone act activities um, and, and strengthening resilience. I also agree with you. I think on the anti-corruption front is another area where there's some room for optimism. Um, you know, with President Biden issuing the national directive to raise anti-corruption as a national security priority, um, it's kind of shifting the mindset about the way we think of anti-corruption. It's not a nice to have for democracy. It's actually a national security interest. And to, so that in itself was, I think, a kind of a shifting of the mindset about how we think about some of these issues. And I think that there's a lot of positive steps, both in the executive branch and in Congress, as I mentioned, on that anti-corruption side and efforts to strengthen U.S. Uh, resilience there. So uh, I think we're at time. I think this was a fantastic discussion. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. And again, for people who haven't had an opportunity um, to read your book, you know, I definitely recommend it. And it is an important part 
it's an important first step in this effort to get people to shift the way they think about their role in national security. And what's the name of the book? The name of the book is The Defender's Dilemma, Identifying and Deterring Razor and Aggression. And who published it? AI Press. And you can find it online, correct? It's something that you can just download. Yes, AI generously made it available for download free of charge. So uh, it's on AI's website. So incredibly accessible. Yes, that's really wonderful to make these ideas accessible. So Elizabeth, thanks again for joining us and we hope to continue the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.